God, we love you. And we thank you for dying for us, for saving us, for rescuing us. Lord, we think of our leaders right now, for the president, the vice president. We think of our our judges, our justices, our senators, our congressmen. We ask that you'd give them wisdom. God, for the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, at home and abroad, we pray for their protection, their safety. We pray that you would save them, because so many of them just don't know you, Jesus. For our enemies, Lord, that you would confuse and frustrate their plans, and that you'd also save them and do a miracle. Lord, we think of the persecuted church right now. Pastor Yusuf in Iran, Leah Sherabu, this teenage girl being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Pastor Wang, Pastor John in China, for our brothers and sisters in Algeria who have recently come under such intense persecution. Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. We pray that you would help them, God. We pray that you would help them. We pray that you would help us today to hear from you. Free our minds from distractions. And help us to hear from you, Lord. Encourage us. Those of us who need encouragement, convict us. Those of us who need conviction, give us, Lord, exactly what we need. May our lives be brought under greater authority to your word. And keep me, Lord, from error. Help me to say only what I'm supposed to say today. And if, if Lord, there's something that I have not planned on saying, Lord, then give me a word for, for someone here today. Help me, Lord. I, I need your help right now. We need you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We are in part four of our study through the book of Esther. Part four, uh, beginning in chapter four. When Mordecai, this is Esther's older cousin, who's adopted her. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Clothes are torn. Next, a hairy garment would be brought Ashes spread over one's head. This was the apparel of mourners, especially those mourning for the dead. And the scene here of Mordecai's mourning is duplicated all over the empire by the Jews who heard about the edict. Certain death was coming for them. Unless 
a deliverer unless a liberator came forth. Certain death is going to come for the people of God in this story. That's why the scene opens up the way it does. When Esther's young women, verse 4, and her eunuchs came and told her the, the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hatok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. that He might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. She sends him these clothes that he could put them on because remember while he's in sackcloth and ashes, he can't enter into the king's gate, sends a very trusted eunuch to go. He says, no, I don't want the clothes. And then proceeds to tell him why he is the way he is. All the things that transpired that we learned back in chapter 3, where Haman came together with this plot to wipe out all the Jews. We saw how Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And that really ticked him off. But Haman wasn't content with just killing Mordecai. He wants everybody like him killed. Bottom line, as we saw from last week, when we identify ourselves with the people of God, hardship will be followed closely behind. That was the big takeaway from last week. And so, Esther gets briefed. Her eunuch comes back tells her everything that's taken place. And then she sends him once again with another response. Verse 9, And Hatok went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Herodotus, the Greek historian, confirms exactly what Esther says. However, he also explains that one could send a message to the king and request an audience. Why doesn't Esther just do that then? We don't know. Perhaps she realized that if, if she sends a message requesting audience with the king, that she would then have to disclose all the information. Her entire purpose. And maybe she wasn't prepared to do that. But what is clear is that she is not ready and not prepared to take a risk to, as he says in verse 8, to plead with the king, to ask the king for favor. 
She's, she's not willing, she's not ready, she's not prepared to go before the king and do that. To ask for the king's favor. Because in Esther's mind right now, she's not even sure if she has the king's favor. He hasn't called for her these last 30 days. And what we know of Ahasuerus, and, and you know him better by his Greek name Xerxes, same guy. What we know about Ahasuerus is he's... He doesn't strike me as someone who is bound by fidelity when it comes to romantic relationships. He's just, that just doesn't strike me as something. And so I think Esther's fear is, is no doubt a real fear. He hasn't called, I haven't, I haven't spent any time with him in the last month. Perhaps another girl has caught his eye, has his favor now. And so that's her fear. So she sends her eunuch back to give Mordecai the message. Mordecai, you don't understand. This is why I can't, I can't do this. I can't plead for favor on behalf of the Jews when I'm not even sure if I have the king's favor at this point. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He warns her. Mordecai warns Esther. Esther, you cannot hide from this. You think you're safe in the palace? You think you're safe and secure? Because you're the queen of Persia? No. Absolutely not. When we think about risk, I think it's worth mentioning. In our avoidance of risk... It may be more sinful, dare I say, more unloving than taking the risk in faith and love and making a wrong decision. There is a a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking. There is a a hypocrisy that lets us take risk every day for ourselves, but then paralyzes us from taking risk for others on the road to love. We are deluded and think that such risk may somehow jeopardize a security that in fact does not exist. That's what Mordecai wants her to understand. You don't do anything? Don't think that you're going to be safe there. Don't think that you're going to escape what's coming. Security, safety, Esther, is a myth if you think you're going to be safe. That is what Mordecai points out to Esther. In other words, it is right to seek to make much of Christ by taking risk of love I could sum up the sermon in like a sentence. Risk is right 
and I, and I don't mean every risk, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about you going to the casinos and playing the slots to win your tuition money or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Right? There's a difference between gambling and taking risk, folks. There's a difference between gambling and taking risk, especially when those risks are for love, right? For love for other people. That's important. And so, what does he say here? Verse 14, I would say, this is one of the principal themes within this story. It emerges. He says, Esther, if you, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, God takes care of his people. One of the, the principal themes of this book on display here in verse 14, God takes care of His people. God will deliver His people. And you say, well, Joe, that's not always. And I would say, yes, that's always. <laughs> no, it's not. What about the persecuted church that we pray for? They're not seemingly being delivered. What about Christians who die for their faith? How are they being delivered? And I would simply point out to you, do not make the mistake of thinking that Christ and the promises of Christ have somehow failed us because we experience hostility. That was the point of last week's sermon. If you identify with the people of God, you will experience hostility. Good chance that you will. Have you not heard that it was said, through many tribulations one must enter the kingdom of God? Shouldn't be a surprise that people don't like us Christians. So what about those people? I would say, while Mordecai points out a principal theme of this story, Esther, even if you don't help, deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You think about the greatest story in the scriptures where God delivered his people at the cross. See, what he did at the cross was really the greatest example of this foreshadowing we have here in a sense It's for what he did there that we can join with the Apostle Paul as he says to the Corinthians, Death, where is your sting? He delivers his people. But there's still death. Yes, but for the Christian, we don't have to be afraid of it, right? Death is just part of the journey, right? That we all travel. It's it's the next stop. Scary if you don't know Jesus. Scary, but not for the Christian. No, don't miss that principal theme of the book, Esther. Even if you don't, deliverance will rise from another place. And, oh, by the way, is it not entirely possible, Esther, that God has brought you here for such a time as this? Is that not possible? That God has guided your life, Esther. That's what Mordecai is telling her. That he has guided your life to this point, right? How do you think your queen, out of all the other women that you beat out for this spot, right? Estimates 400 to up to 1,400 plus women. How do you think that your queen, Esther, is it not perhaps for such a time as this? In other words, it's not just for your own benefit, Esther. Right? You live in the palace. 
Avoid taking risks. Have a nice, cushy, safe life. Is it not for such a time as this? If there ever was a time, wouldn't it be right here, right now, Esther? Christian, I would say you've been adopted. Right? Ephesians 1, you've been adopted, you've been chosen out of God's love for you, and that's not simply for your own benefit. If you know Jesus, I know, I know about Jesus, right? I, I know Jesus in a saving way. Like, if you know Jesus, that's great. Right? If you understand the gospel and what he did for you, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection... That's wonderful, but if you don't share that with those who need it, what does that say about you? There's a reason, Esther. There's a reason, reason, Christian, that God has placed you where He's placed you. There's a reason. It's not simply so you can just have this nice, cushy, safe Christian life. Work really hard, make lots of money, retire at like 41. Go get your little yacht down in Naples, collect your shells, right? Some of you guys know where I'm going with that. Like if you know Jesus, that's great. But what do you do with that knowledge that you have? Do you, do you want to... I'll ask the question, do you want to obey God and do what is right, or do you just want to continue and coast? I'll make no mistake, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Understand this, in these situations, there's no neutral position, there's no Switzerland here. I'm just going to ride this out, things are getting a little sporty. No, failure, failure to act is more than just a missed opportunity to fulfill God's purpose. It's also sinful. It's, it's, not, even, it's not, oh, well, I, I, missed God, I missed an opportunity, rats. Right? No, it's, it's more than just a missed opportunity. I wouldn't deny that. I would say it's also sinful. And that's the point, right? There's, you, you can feel it now, right? There's a little confrontation that Mordecai is having here with his adopted cousin. In this story, the, the physical lives of her people are at stake. Will she intervene? Or will she not risk her own safety for others? Will she remain silent while others perish? You know, for many people, the sad reality is despite claiming to know Christ, despite claiming to love Christ, there are many people, for when the metal meets the meat, they're nowhere to be found. And we find ourselves in situations like Esther, in a position to help, in a position to intervene on behalf of a lost and dying world, and then we don't. Because we're scared. Or we just don't care. Let someone else give, right? There's a need. Let someone else write the check. Let someone else befriend 
Let someone else witness. Let someone else share the gospel. Let someone else correct or rebuke. I've got my own life like Esther. And so many Christians, they just want to play it safe. They want to take zero risk for God. You do this, Esther, you won't escape. You sit on the sidelines, Esther, you won't escape what's coming. And that's the warning that Mordecai gives to Esther. And I would argue that it is just as true for Christians who are tempted to do nothing. Christian, you you will be held accountable. So this is where we need to understand that sin is more than just a missed opportunity. Oh, that was a missed opportunity. Rats. It's true. But this is sin. See, sin is more than just doing bad things and disobeying. Sin is also failing to act when we know that we should. That's what James tells us. See, James 4.17? Have you not heard that it was said? It is a sin when you know the right thing to do. You know it's the right thing to do, and you don't do anything. We're not just talking about, oh, well, that was a missed opportunity. No, like you're sinning. You're, You're in disobedience to the king. You're in open rebellion to the king of the universe. Think of it like that the next time. And this is why the gospel, quite frankly, is such great news. It's, it's really good news for a lot of reasons. If you've been here for Easter, uh, always go through and preach different uh, reasons why Jesus came to die. But this is why. This is one of the reasons the gospel is such great news. Because in those moments, when we're afraid to take a risk, to speak up, to share the gospel, to say what needs to be said, whatever it might be. So the reason it's such great news is because doing nothing needs forgiveness as much as doing the very best you can and then making a mistake along the way. When, when you do nothing, because you're afraid, like, like Esther, you, you need just as much forgiveness as when you do do something and then err along the way. So here's the situation. To risk or not to risk? That's the situation before us. That's the situation before Esther. Mordecai has laid it out for her. Do I risk or do I not risk? Do I risk or do I run? And uh, Esther makes the hard decision. She makes the right decision as we'll see. Verse 15. (laughs) Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. She makes the hard decision, which just so happens to be the right decision. And that's usually how it goes. The right decision usually is the hard decision. My mother reminded me from the time I was a small child that if the right decision was easy, everyone would do it. She chooses the path of love. She chooses to run the risk. And now she looks to them, her people, for spiritual support. Don't miss that here. 
Notice what she says in verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. This is really terrifying, okay? Really scary for her. And in those moments, those really scary, terrifying moments that we have, we we need support from our brothers and sisters. In the community of faith, Christians must support one another in making difficult decisions. The problem is, for, for many Christians, they don't have community. Despite putting the word community in the name or title or description, we lack it. We don't, we don't have it. And she realizes she's going to need it now more than ever. And she tells them to go and to fast. To go and to fast. While the word prayer is not mentioned here, It is implied, the original audience, when they read this, they would have understood that prayer was a part of the fasting that is taking place. She adds the words here, night or day, means that the fast was to be continuous, not broken by eating at night, which would typically how it would work there in Israel. Fasting usually practiced only during the day. And throughout the Old Testament, we see fasting as very important. Although the Israelites were only required to fast one day, the Day of Atonement, there are many examples of fasting on special occasions or in times of special need. I think this is one of those times, right? Isaiah 58, 1-12 also points out to us that true fasting is not just ritual. It was about meeting the needs of the people. It is the means by which one denies one's own needs and then focuses directly on one's relationship with God and the world. And so by her request for fasting here, and once again, prayer is assumed, she shows that she needs the support of others. And she recognizes the needs for God's intervention. Don't don't miss that. In her making the request here, Mordecai, go get everyone together and and fast. And as I said, prayer is implied here. She shows that she needs the support of others. But she's the queen of Persia. She still needs other people. And that's important. That we understand that, that that we think that way because that's not how our culture thinks. That's not how our Christian culture thinks. It's very individualistic, right? Got my online sermons, good to go. All right, sounds like it could be part of John Chris' routine Friday night or something at that point, but that's how people think. So she recognizes she needs the support of others, and oh, by the way, God's intervention. We're fasting, we're praying for what? For God to do a miracle. Because if He doesn't, we're all going to die. You know, at first in the story, she uh, she kind of seems more concerned about her own safety, right? She she does. She she is. She's human. I probably would too. But when she's confronted by Mordecai and he says what she needs to hear, oh how I'm I'm thankful for Mordecai-like friends who say what I need to hear. And uh, 
Of course, what does he tell her? Who knows, Esther, that perhaps you've been brought here for such a time as this. At that point, she commits herself to the path of love and risk. It's worth noting, I, just, I see so many Christians today, and they're more concerned about their own security or, or comfort than about the desperate physical and spiritual needs of the world. I even see it on Sundays among those who claim to be Christians, even by the way we quote-unquote choose our, our churches. I've been guilty of this, right? And I'm sure you've, you've said the same thing that I used to say all the time. Where do you want to go to church today? Right. Where do you want to go to church today? And that statement really illuminates the problem. If, if you're saying that statement, and I'm not saying this to be mean or harsh, but if that's like you're thinking, I want you to right, move past that. Think, think more biblically and more true thoughts. But when we say things like, where am I going to go to church today? It reveals a significant inadequacy, and that is you lack community. You do. The, the statement, where am I going to go to church today? It reveals a major problem that you don't have community. And that was, that was a young Joe Decreon all the time. Because that's how we are. That's, that's how the American Disneyland version of Christianity is set up for us. It's like, oh, you guys want to go to Chick-fil-A afterwards, after the service? You, no, it's, it's closed. Okay, well, then we'll go to Blaze. Like, it's, it's almost, that's how we treat church, as if it's just a menu item ready to order. You won't find that example of the church or community anywhere in the Bible. That's the reality, right? I got my sermons, I'm good to go. My online sermons, right? Not the church brother or sister who's struggling to be a part of this community. And then what I usually find, what I usually find is people don't realize, realize that they don't have community until they find themselves in situations like Esther. When the, as we say in the army, when the poops hit the fan and my life is just rock bottom and things are really, really hard. It's like, wait, I, I've been bouncing around for, I don't know, how many 20 plus years? I've never actually gone and, and, and become a part and gotten involved in a local church. We just think that way, right? We're so individualistic, right? We're living our lives in the palace in Persia, and we forget that we're supposed to be a part of the community, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And that's really illuminated right here in this story. That's the point here. She knows she needs the support of others, but she's the queen of Persia. She still needs the support of others. And that's true whether you're the queen of Persia or an 18-year-old freshman sitting here or listening online. You need that. She needs the support of others and she needs the intervention of God. That's why verse 16 is here. That's why I'm drawing our attention to this verse lest we go too fast and read over too quickly and miss the point. And then notice what she says next. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. Wow. What does that mean? It means that Esther did not know 
what the outcome of her action would be. She has no special revelation from God. She made her decision on the basis of wisdom and love for her people and trust in God. She had to risk or run. She didn't know how it's going to turn out. And so she makes her decision and then hands the results over to God. If I perish, I perish. And this was right. So right. This can be illuminated further. Uh, we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. Israel's fighting the Amalekites. Remember Haman, bad guy in this story? He's an Amalekite. We learned that last week. <coughs> and the Amalekites in that story back in 2 Samuel chapter 10, they had shamed the messengers of Israel, made themselves repulsive in the sight of David, and to protect themselves, they had hired the Syrians to fight with them against the Israelites. And Joab, he's the commander of Israel's forces, and he finds himself in a very difficult position like Custer, a little bighorn. He's cut off and surrounded with the Amalekites on one side and with the Syrians on the other. And so he divides his troops up. He puts his brother Abishai in charge of one detachment. They pledge their support. If the fighting gets too intense, you let me know. We'll shift our flank and support you and vice versa. And then comes the great word in verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 10. He says, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. In in other words, Joab made a strategic decision for the cities of God and he didn't know how it was going to turn out, much like Esther. He had no special revelation from God on this issue. He had to make a decision on the basis of sanctified wisdom, you might say. He had to risk a run. He didn't know how it would turn out. So he makes a decision and he hands, much like Esther, the results over to God. And this was right. It's a beautiful example to illustrate taking Risk on the road to love of Christ. But you say, what happens when this doesn't happen? What happens if, say, there's an alternate ending? What happens then? The answer is wasted lives. That's the answer. Wasted lives is what happens when you choose to run instead of risk. Do you remember... The time it happened, it had, uh, it had been less than three years since the people of Israel came out of Egypt by the power of God. They were on the borders of the promised land. Moses sends out the spies. Remember the story from childhood? Spies go out, come back in. Some of them give a really good report. Joshua and Caleb. We can take it. We can beat those guys. Everybody else, no, we can't do that. Way too dangerous. Not happening. Not happening. Despite the pleas of Caleb and Joshua, it didn't happen. At all. They didn't go and take it. The people were, you might say, drunk. In a dream world of security. And and they tried to stone Caleb and Joshua. The, The result... 
of their inaction, the result of them not taking a risk, was thousands of wasted lives and wasted years. It was clearly wrong not to take the risk of battling the giants of the land of Canaan. And, uh, oh, how much is wasted when we don't risk for the cause of God. See, that's why I said earlier that risk avoidance may be more sinful, more unloving than taking risk in faith like Esther or Joab or Abishai and then making a wrong decision, right? There is a a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of taking risk, Christians. There is a hypocrisy that lets us take Risk every day for ourselves, but then paralyzes us from taking risk for others on the road to love, on the road to the cross. We are deluded and think incorrectly. Like Esther, that we are in a safe place. And we're not. Whatever security you think you have, There in your Persian palace, it's a mirage. It can be taken from you like that. It can be gone like that. So then what what do you do? What's, What's the secret now? Or how does the gospel enable us to take the type of risk that we need to take? I, uh... Some of you guys remember Philippians chapter 4, 13. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. It is probably the, I don't know, the number one post-game Bible verse after a football game that I have heard athletes quote, right? You've seen it too, right? That, that, is, that is the like go-to sports post-game interview. Give glory to God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There it is, right there. We memorize this verse, remember last year in small group, because it gets brought up a lot. A great verse. It's even greater when you realize what verse comes before it. So, what verse comes before it? Philippians chapter 4, 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then when you get to verse 19, when Paul promises in verse 19, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory of Christ Jesus. It's truly amazing. See, he said, here's the question, right? What's the secret, right? How do we take those risks when we're afraid. Take risks to give. Take risks to witness. Take risks to befriend. Take risks for the gospel. And I would argue that it's holding on to the promises of God. Like here. So remember, think about this. Remember what he's just said. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things. 
All things mean I can suffer hunger through him who strengthens me. That gives you a different type of flavor than the post-game dropping of Philippians 4.13. That means I can be destitute of food, destitute of clothing through him who strengthens me. That's what Jesus promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us, as Hebrews 13.5 says. If we starve, he will be our everlasting life-giving bread. If we are shamed, he will be our perfect, all-righteous apparel. If we are tortured and made to scream in our dying pain, he will keep us from cursing his name and restore our beaten body to everlasting beauty. That's the promise, right? Oh, I can do all things. So Christian, we're faced, right? To risk or to run. And you may be tempted to run. And the thought of taking risk might be terrifying. You preach Philippians chapter 4, 12 and 13 to yourself all day long. As I said, one of the major themes in this book, and and he drops it right there for us. In verse 14, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. Esther. And the greatest example of that was at the cross when he defeated death. What do you have to be afraid of? Think of what, what do you have to be afraid of, Christian, to live totally and wholly committed to Jesus? What do you have to be afraid of? What's holding you back? I mean, what's the worst that happens? You, you, you die? We don't have to be afraid. He's defeated death. He's defeated death. And so my hope for us today is that God would give us the courage to join with Esther in taking risk for him and his people. We might say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. Oh, that God might give us the sort of courage and strength that would break us from the subtleties of selfishness that make us hold on to the mirage of security that we think we possess, but we don't really possess it. And that God would give us Mordecai-like members of our community to speak truth to us so that in the end we can join in the risk-taking adventure for the cause of Christ and the beauty of the gospel love, saying along the way with the great generals of history, may God do what seems best. Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. God, help us not to be scared and afraid. To say true things. To share the gospel. Help us not to be afraid to give our time. To give our money. God, protect us from the mirage of security that often holds us back from taking risk and that almost started to hold Esther back here in this story, Lord. These are hard things. These are hard things, Jesus, and so we need your help. God, help us. 
And Lord, help us to remember that we can do all things through you, including not having food, including being tortured for your very name. We can do all things through you who strengthens us, God. Lord, help us. Help us to be and have courage, Lord, because you've already delivered your people from our greatest enemy, sin and the devil at the cross. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.